This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, and welcome back to Signals to Danger. This is our second episode, and I'm really happy to invite you all back for round two. I just want to start out by thanking everyone who listened to episode one. I didn't know how much interest there was going to be in this subject matter, and I've never done a podcast before. But it was really exciting to keep getting emails from my hosting service, telling me how many downloads the first episode had received. Because I know now that at least a few people have listened into that first episode, I've done a few extra bits and bobs between then and now. Knowing people are out there, I'm going to try and really improve the production quality. First and foremost, we're now available at more and more podcast locations. You can stream us from Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, and a few more besides. So I'm really almost at the point now where I can say, find us wherever you get your podcasts from. The other exciting thing now is we have a website. If you go to www.signalstodanger.com, you'll find our shiny new website. Not only can you stream the podcast from there, you'll find an episode guide, some additional information on the accidents in each episode, a couple of images to help underline the points discussed, and some links to the sources that I used. With all that in mind, I'd also like to interact with you fine people listening to some extent as well. On the website, there's a contact form if you want to leave us a message, um, or we now have a social media presence on Facebook and Twitter, so feel free to contact through them as well. Search Signals to Danger on Facebook or at Signals to Danger on Twitter. Now I know that railway safety is fairly prominent in both mainstream and industry media right now due to the ongoing investigation into the derailment at Stonehaven. I'm planning on covering this, but not until the RAIB and Police Scotland investigations are complete. Speculation around that accident has been prominent in recent weeks. I really don't wish to be a part of that. The very last thing I'll say to you before we get started is to share a little bit of feedback I received from last week's episode. After I published it and plugged it a little bit on my own social media, 
I was contacted by a former colleague on LinkedIn who shared his experiences of Great Heck from back in 2001. Robin had been GNER's Head of Planning and Performance at the time, and due to catch the incident train down to a meeting in London, his plans changed on the morning and he ended up walking across to their headquarters. As he arrived in the office, he started to hear people talking about a derailed train. In a world before social media, drip-fed information arrives much slower. A train colliding with a car on a level crossing gradually became something clearer and terrible. Robin actually ended up attending site to help coordinate GNER's response, and he told me how he found the scene as they drove up to the wreckage. Even 20 years later, it's obvious that these scenes remain clear in his mind, and this certainly doesn't surprise me at all. Moving on from our last episode then. Sadly, Great Heck is not the only disaster to have occurred on Britain's railways. So, without further ado, it's time for us to start on this week's episode. There are several images that have been burned into the public psyche after disasters. Images splashed over the cover of newspapers and television screens for days and weeks. Images which show the forces involved and the destruction left behind. Images such as the nose of an airliner on a Scottish hillside after Lockerbie, or the Herald of Free Enterprise laid on its side in the shallows at Zabrugga. In 2002, the image in people's mind was the final carriage of a passenger train, wedged sideways under a station canopy, swarmed by the emergency services. This episode, we're headed to Potter's Bar. The cause of the crash is still not certain. The railway industry is tonight coming to terms with yet another disaster. As ambulances ferried away dozens of injured to nearby hospitals, surviving sleeping car coaches and two guards vans ploughed across gardens and into two houses more than 20 yards from the track. As news of the disaster first broke, there was no place for politics. A routine, everyday commute that ended like this. Many dead, over 50 injured, in one of the worst incidents in London's transport history. This is the scene tonight as salvage teams battle to untangle the wreckage of this Police and fire were to say that the people killed and 76 injured in the train traffic from London King's Cross to King's Lynch. Two rails on the wagon face fire, and 150 firemen from all over the Manchester area were called to the scene. This is Signals to Danger, a podcast where we look at the major rail disasters which have occurred in the UK, explain what happened, how the investigation was carried out and how each of these accidents shaped the industry going forwards. I'm Dan. I work within the rail industry in my day-to-day life, but today I'll be the one taking you through this podcast. This time we're in 2002. It's the year after Great Heck, which we covered last time. Again, to put some context on the year... On January the 1st, the Euro was officially introduced, bringing much of Europe under one currency. The Winter Olympics had been held in Salt Lake City during February, and Queen Elizabeth II marked her 50th year on the throne. All of this had occurred before we reached the 10th of May. Tango 6-0. On the 10th, this was the 1245 West Anglia Great Northern service from London King's Cross to King's Lynn. The traction was a class 365 electric multiple unit, four carriages long. The train was operated by driver Gordon Gibson. There was no guard on the train, 
as West Anglia Great Northern, or Wagon as they were often referred to, ran this as a driver-only service. Carved out from British Rail's network southeast, Wagon was the franchise which covered services from the capital up to the Norfolk coast, and the first part of this journey takes us back to the same route we were on last week, just a lot further south. The East Coast Main Line As we said last time, the ECML is one of the two main routes from London up to Scotland. Due to the length of that journey, as much of that route as possible is set up for high line speeds. Although the maximum is 125 mile an hour, it's not unusual to find line speeds of 90, 100, 115 throughout the route, even through stations. This was the case as Potter's Bar. If you want to picture the layout of the station, it has four platforms arranged over two islands, with a station building off to the side. Both islands and the station building are connected by a subway, platforms 1 and 4 are the slow lines, and 2 and 3 in the middle are the fast lines. Northbound services through 1 and 2, with a down direction, leaving London. The line speed through the fast lines is 115 mile an hour, and as one Tango 6-0 approached Potter's Bar, it was travelling at around its maximum permissible speed of 100. At approximately 12.55, as the front of the train entered the station, driver Gibson felt a slight jolt, as if the train had lost power. So he eased off slightly on the controller. He then felt more jolts, which started to feel more severe, and he reported hearing a sound which he thought could be a faulty traction motor. He started to apply the brakes of the train at this point, but then the jolts and bangs became far more severe. Suddenly, all the lights in the cab went out and the train brakes automatically applied fully. Once his train came to a stand, driver Gibson looked out from his cab. He saw smoke and dust to the rear of his train. Assuming, rightfully, that his train had derailed, he sprang into action and followed his training. He tried to make an emergency call on the cab secure radio, but the call didn't work. But his track circuit operating clips, often abbreviated to TCOCs, and placed a set on the up fast in the opposite direction. To understand why he did this, we first need to understand track circuits. In brief, track circuits allow the signalling system to tell whether or not a train is in a certain location. They also control automatic signals on the network. Power is run through both rails, and when a train is in that section, the axles short out the circuit, and this tells the systems that that block is occupied. The TCOCs are two metal clips connected by a metal cable. They work by tricking the signalling system into thinking a train is in the section, replacing the axle of the train with the cable. As Gordon Gibson placed them on the down fast, this would have tricked the signalling system into thinking there was a train there, automatically placing any protecting signals to danger. In the King's Cross power signal box, the clock ticked to 12.55. One of the signallers was quietly observing his area when he was suddenly confronted with a host of alarms. These were identifiable as being two sets of points showing out of correspondence and a number of track circuits showing unexpectedly occupied in the area of Potter's Bar. Following on from what I've just explained, the track circuit alarms meant the system thought there was a train when there shouldn't be. Points out of correspondence means that the detected position of the points, which are the junctions between tracks, doesn't match the position that they've been set to. The setting doesn't correspond with the position. That this potentially meant that something had gone wrong, the signaller immediately placed two signals to danger in the down direction, and his colleague did the same in the up. No trains would now be moving in the area of the station. After this, the signaller started to contact trains he knew were in the area, 
he managed to get hold of a southbound train, which he confirmed had stopped at a red signal, and then tried to contact Tango 60, but he didn't get a response. After that, he tried to speak to the driver of another train, which should have been sat in Platform 4 at Potter's Bar, but again, he received no answer. He then received a phone call of his own, from an office on a platform at the station. Paul McCarthy, a production supervisor, confirmed the worst fears of the team at King's Cross. He confirmed that a major incident had taken place and asked to be connected with the duty shift manager. This call itself actually confirmed the DSM's worries. He had just been involved in the conversation with the electrical control operator about the loss of power to the overhead lines between Alexandra Palace and Potter's Bar. He contacted the emergency services to arrange a full response, speaking first to the fire service and then the police. The site that faced arriving rescuers was initially seen to be split into two definitive areas. One Tango 60 could be found 289 metres north of the Potter's Bar station. The two leading vehicles were undamaged. However, that's where this condition came to an end. The third vehicle didn't get off so lightly. The pantograph which takes power from the overhead lines was damaged. There was damage visible to the trailing bogey and the sole bar, which is the beam running along the length of the train onto which the bodywork sits. The trailing bogey of the third carriage was derailed. The fourth vehicle was not there. This brings us to the second part of the rescue site. At the south end of the Potter's Bar station was the last carriage of the Kings Lynn train. It was horizontal between the two platforms, almost creating a footbridge between them. Tilting about 45 degrees to the south, it was wedged between the platform canopy and the platform surface. It was clear this was where the more serious injuries would be found. Its trailing bogey had been ripped clear. There was visible damage to the body shell. Small balance weights and a block of concrete had made their way into the carriage. A piece of steel was sucked through the sole bar and all but three of the windows had shattered. Inside the carriage, damage was found to a large number of the seats on the left-hand side. One of the reasons Potter's Bar features so heavily in people's minds when they think train crash it's because of the location it happened. The train wasn't in a cutting or some remote location surrounded by fields. It was wedged there on platforms directly next to a supermarket car park in the middle of a town centre and raised up above it all for everyone to see. There are no shortages of photographs and video footage of that site that made it into print and television media in no time. Evacuation was a mixed bag of challenges. People who had been on the station or on the stop train in Platform 4 at the time were quickly escorted by staff to a position of safety off the station. The leading three vehicles of Tango 60? More of a complex matter. A revenue inspector on the lead portion was able to reassure the passengers and noted that one had been injured. Once the inspector had spoken to BTP and arranged for the injured party to be rescued, he waited with them until next steps could be arranged. Eventually, the passengers were helped down ladders to the ballast and escorted along the track to the adjacent supermarket car park. At the fourth carriage, wedged in across the platforms, the rescue effort started immediately. Members of the public and station staff started first aid straight away, trying what they could do to assist the injured. As efforts started to ramp up, 
They were joined by trained first aiders from the adjacent offices who brought additional first aid kits. And as soon as the emergency services arrived on the scene, they took charge of the rescue efforts from the rear carriage, using ladders, tools and other pieces of firefighting and rescue equipment to do everything they could. The thing that might not be obvious to the railway men and women rapidly becoming involved in this incident is that a third accident scene existed. Directly south of Potter's Bar Station there is an underbridge. This bridge allows the traffic on Darks Lane to pass under the tracks. Either side of that roadway there are footpaths that are raised up to around 6 feet from the road's surface. Underneath this bridge Darks Lane had been blocked by falling debris and stopped vehicles. This debris wasn't just on the carriageway itself, but also on the footpaths next to it. When the rescue operations across these three sites was completed, the sad truth became clear. Yet again, lives had been lost on the British Rail Network. The six people who lost their lives on the train were 75-year-old Austin Kark, 29-year-old Emma Knights, 25-year-old Junal Schlickler, 42-year-old Alexander Ogunwusi, 29-year-old Chia Hassin, and 30-year-old Chia Chin Wu. Particularly tragically, they were joined by a seventh victim, 80-year-old pedestrian Agnes Quinlivan, who had been walking along the footpath on Darks Lane at the time, struck by debris as it fell from the bridge. rescue and recovery completed, it became important to discover what had turned another normal, everyday journey into disaster. Immediately after the derailment, all of the interested parties made arrangements to bring senior technical staff to the scene. Wagon and rail track arranged for their teams to arrive, and they were joined by the private contractor Jarvis, a company which provided maintenance support services to the network. In fact, Jarvis were the infrastructure maintenance contractor for this line. At 13.28, Railtrack informed Her Majesty's Rail Inspectorate of the accident, and shortly after 1700, they and BTP took over the investigation. Just as at other accidents, they needed to understand a series of key points to explain the deaths of seven people, and the injuries sustained by many others. Firstly, what mechanism had caused the train to leave the tracks at 100 miles an hour? Had any opportunities existed for the railway safety systems to prevent this accident? Finally, had the vehicles involved performed adequately? The first point was the most important in the early part of the investigation. With nearly 11,000 miles of railway in the UK and thousands of services every day, knowing any potentially fatal flaws was incredibly important to safety going forwards. Most, but not all, derailments take place when tracks are not straight and level. The unbroken straight rail is pretty good at keeping track and train together. There are the odd situations where it isn't as simple as this, Google hunting oscillation if you fancy reading up on an odd quirk of physics, but generally they happen in one of two locations. The first is where railways turn corners. This could be a train travelling too fast for the location, such as the, well, multiple derailments on Morpeth Curve, or due to failing components caused by the increased stress these situations bring to the rails. That leads to accidents like Hatfield. 
Again, both are things we will cover on this podcast in the future. But they were ruled out at Potter's Bar. The lines on the northbound approach to the station are as good as straight, and they take a gentle right-hand curve just afterwards. The lack of extensive curvature at Potter's Bar is reflected in the line speed. It's 115 miles an hour on the fast lines where our train was travelling. Curvature was not to blame. The second place we often find derailments are where tracks split or join junctions known as points. These are locations where pieces of metal physically move and direct the wheels from one set of tracks to another. This was a much more likely possibility when we start to look at the track layout around Potter's Bar. The station has four platforms with one track running through each. Immediately south of the station is the Darks Lane Underbridge, which was actually three bridge structures, one carrying both of the fast lines in the middle and one at each side for the slow lines. Just further south again are a number of points which allow trains to move between the fast and slow lines on approach to the station. Now, a quick version of points 101. For a train to move from one track to another parallel track usually requires two sets of points. The points work in unison and are normally given the same identifying number with either an A or a B appended to differentiate between them. Points are also usually referred to as facing or trailing. Facing points are when two routes diverge and one track becomes two. Trailing points are where two converge and two becomes one. The last part of points 101 is this. For trains to be diverted from one route to another requires the rails themselves to move. This is achieved using a mixture of switch and stock rails. The diverging routes are laid out by the stock rails which leave a gap where they meet. This gap is filled using the switch rails. These are two parallel rails which move a few inches in either direction to form either the start of a curve onto the diverging route or the straight rails on ahead through the junction. These rails must stay the correct distance apart and move in unison to maintain the correct gauge and keep trains on the track. The two switch rails are held in that gauge using pieces of metal called stretcher bars. When points are in the most used direction, straight ahead, they're said to be in the normal position and if they're in the other position, they're referred to as being in reverse. With all that in mind, it's clear to see how the investigation started to focus on 2182 Alpha points. 2182A was the facing points located on the down fast line. These were facing points that when used in conjunction with 2182B formed a crossover that would allow a train on the fast lines to enter the slow platform. While the speed on the down line was 115 miles an hour, the allowed speed over the actual crossover was only 30. As the train passed over these points just before the station, it was only natural that they would be looked at. In fact, the first rail incident officer recalled seeing Jarvis staff at the points around about 1425, but was primarily involved at that time with arranging the rescue efforts with the emergency services. At the 1800 meeting of the coordinating group, a decision was made to preserve evidence at the crossover and plastic sheeting was fitted over the switch rails at 2182 Alpha. What was found by investigators was this. The condition of the points fell far below the standard that was required for safe operation of trains on the UK rail network. In fact, 
During the course of the investigation, the following issues were found. Two pandrel clips, the twisting, almost kidney-shaped clips which hold tractor sleepers, were missing from the right-hand stock rail. Loose bolts were found on the heel blocks close to the toes of the switch rails, and the motor that moved the switch rails was found to be overdriving towards the reverse direction, which in simple terms means that when the points were set towards the slow line, the motor was still trying to move the rail once it had come into contact with the stock rail, which put additional strain on all of the mechanisms. While all of the above could be indicative of a degradation in the standard of maintenance, they weren't on their own the smoking gun that everyone was looking for, but that was found on 2182 Alpha as well. The left hand of the front stretcher bar, one of the pieces of metal designed to keep the two switch rails correctly spaced, was found lying down in the ballast not attached to the rail. No marks indicated that it had been struck or damaged as part of the accident. Nuts and bushes from the left-hand connections to the rail were missing, but similar fixings were found on the ballast next to the switch. The lock stretcher bar, the bar that was at the very tip of the rails, was found to have fractured at its right-hand side around about the point it had been drilled into to accept the bolts for the connection to the rail. It was also found to have been fitted incorrectly, and the ends would have been splayed, putting additional strain on the bar itself. And finally, around the area that the bar had fractured, they discovered three distinct conditions. A corroded area, which indicated a crack that had grown over months, a brighter area, which was estimated to have grown over a few days, and a small area where the final failure had taken place rapidly. And then the third stretcher bar, the rear one, was found to be missing a main nut, a lock nut and the outer insulating bush. Again, there were similar items found on the ballast nearby. And the movement there had caused for a narrowing of the flangeway gap. And that's the gap in the point assembly that allows the wheels of trains to pass through safely. Additionally to all of this, just off to the side of the points is an arrangement of cranks and rods, which is referred to as the supplementary drive. It couples the movements at the front and rear of the stretcher bars to an arrangement of rods and cranks. Movements of the points rotates the front crank anti-clockwise via the front connection rod assembly. This in turn moves channel rodding and rotates the rear crank anti-clockwise. The arm of the rear crank moves the right and rear connection rod assembly, pulling the right hand switch rail towards the right hand stock rail. If that makes sense. I understand that's not really a listen and understand it sort of concept that's a diagrams in front of you sort of concept but in short it couples the movements and without it you can't guarantee the position of the rear stretcher bar is correct at these points that crucial assembly was found to be damaged the pivots of both the cranks were damaged the pins that held them to their bases were broken and there was marks on the rodding which showed they'd been positioned incorrectly at some point Everything I've said is probably a gross oversimplification of the issues that were found at the points, but the detail in the report covers tens of pages of it, and actually the vast majority of the accompanying appendices. I hope that I've been able to give you in enough detail that you can basically understand their condition um, and the relevance to the investigation, but the evidence found here was enough for the investigators to establish the course of the derailment and the cause of the fatalities. 
The two vehicles at the start of the train had passed over 2182 Alpha points without incident, as did the leading bogey of the third. At or near the point that the leading bogey passed the points, the right-hand switch rail, independently of the left, closed against its stock rail. The trailing bogey of vehicle 3 and the leading bogey of vehicle 4 encountered the rails in this configuration. All four axles on these bogies encountered a narrowing gauge and that squeezed them into derailment. At the point the trailing bogey encountered the points and by a mechanism that couldn't be understood by the wealth of knowledge that was involved in the investigation, it derailed but it ended up re-railing on the short piece of track that led across to the slow lines and 2182B points. As the first two derailed bogies encountered the very end of the points, they were deflected further over, and the right-hand wheels started to run between the rails along the sleepers. While this was in the process of happening, over a series of seconds, the rear bogey of the fourth carriage continued on the crossover track. Because of this, that rear carriage started to rotate around to the side, so that it was approaching, being perpendicular to the rest of the train. Just before it reached the slow lines, it derailed again. It impacted a mast for the overhead power lines and destroyed it. That impact lifted it slightly into the air. As the train closed on the station, the fourth carriage impacted the southern end of the Darks Lane underbridge. This impact tore the trailing bogey from the train and lifted the carriage over a significant portion of the bridge. As it flew over, it impacted two of the parapet screens. One of them became attached to the vehicle and the other one was knocked into the road below. Debris from the bridge and the components from the train also fell through to the road at this time and sadly this is what led to the death of Angus Quinlevin as she walked beneath. The carriage continued on when it reached the end of the down platforms. It continued to rotate around till it bridged the gap between the two, demolishing a waiting shelter, lighting columns and another overhead line structure. At the same time as all of this was occurring, the vehicle was also determined to have rolled around 315 degrees by the time it became wedged under the canopies. Of all of the people who lost their lives on the train, two had passed away inside the rear carriage. However, due to the damage to the windows and the rolling, it actually meant that four had been ejected from the vehicle. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
Knowing what physically caused the accident certainly takes one big box for the investigators. But now they needed to understand if it could have been prevented, and more importantly, whether someone was actually responsible, had somebody been negligent. It had established that the fault lay with a set of points which had failed in the course of their day-to-day work at the worst time and under the worst conditions. The condition they were found showed inspectors the reason that they failed. The missing bolts, fractured and incorrectly fitted stretcher bars and supplementary drive in a poor condition were very likely to fail. The fact that there were issues with the cranks and rods of the drive, as well as loosely and incorrectly fitted stretcher bars, meant that the entire force needed to move the right-hand switch rail had not been transferred through all three stretcher bars, it had been transmitted solely through the lock stretcher bar at the very tip of the rails, not evenly shared out at all. That, coupled with the overdrive putting additional strain on it, led to the eventual failure of the switch set. As part of the investigation, the entire set of points was cut away from the track, and it was taken to the Health and Safety Laboratory at Buxton. Experiments were carried out in that controlled environment to see what the condition of each component had been. It was here that the overdrive of the points motor was discovered, as well as several loose or incorrectly fitted components. Several of the nuts holding the switch rails in unison were shown that they could be moved by hand, and no evidence was found to suggest that the nuts from the ballast weren't the ones from the adjacent stretcher bars. In addition, tests were carried out on some of the processes used. The investigation panel, for example, had discovered that no documented or taught procedure had trained the teams to tighten the nuts on the adjustable stretcher bars. However, they were told by witnesses the method that was generally used. The lab was able to ascertain through extensive testing that while it initially would appear as though this method was correctly tightening the fixtures, it was actually storing up the compressive force in the elastomer of the bushes which was a metal and elastomer sleeve which served as an interface between the threads and the holes. This meant that all of the tightness or compressive load introduced could reduce or even disappear in a matter of days. It also meant that if a nut on one side of the assembly came loose, the other side would probably follow. Nuts that had been fitted or tightened correctly would have transferred none or very little of this force into the bushes and the problems simply wouldn't have occurred. In simple terms, the root cause was identified as a lack of appropriate maintenance of the points. While nobody could tell exactly when and how the missing nuts came off the stretcher bars, it's clear that proper maintenance and training would have prevented them loosening dangerously in the first place. Again, this is devoid of the pages of technical detail that the reports provide. If you're of that mind, I really would recommend a browse, but I'm just sure you don't want a three-hour episode on that one individual issue. In any case, switches, crossings, signals, sensors, they're all mechanical, they all have a shelf life. Metal wears, wires tear. It's part of the ebb and flow of the railway and there is an expectation of it. To counter wear and tear, every part of the railway is inspected regularly to make sure it remains safe. From the trains to everything they run over. That is the opportunity for these types of incidents to be prevented. And whether opportunities were missed was the next thing the investigation needed to prove. At least once a week, the continuously welded rails on the fast lines at Potter's Bar required a basic visual inspection, normally as part of a patrol. 
The point work required the same frequency with a maximum of 8 days between inspections. As the line maintenance contractor, Jarvis personnel would carry out these patrols. A supervisor was also required to inspect the switches and crossings of a Category 1 line every fortnight. There was also a requirement for a cab ride at least every two and a half months. In fact, there was a whole host of mandated inspections at mandated intervals. Plenty of opportunities to catch any issues with the infrastructure. In fact, the final two inspections prior to the accident on the 10th of May had taken place on the 1st and the 9th. Nothing unresolved of any concern was raised with these points from either patrol. The last supervisor's inspection in April had nothing to say about the condition of the stretcher bars on 2182 Alpha. Additionally, the area had been surveyed in July 2001 by a train-mounted monitoring system and in March 2002 by a further inspection which took into account critical junctions. Most of these inspections were recorded as seeing no faults. However, with regards to the front stretcher bar, the train-mounted examination had shown one of the nuts to be more prominent than the other. The rear stretcher bar had had its right-hand nuts replaced by the patrol on the 1st of May. None of the inspections identified the fracture in the lock stretcher bar. The final opportunity for the faults to be noticed and rectified occurred the night before the crash. A member of Wagon staff, travelling home to Stevenage from his role at Fimsbury Park, experienced a rough ride as the train he was on, one Charlie 39, ran over the points approaching Potter's Bar. He described the incident as this. As the train passed over the up fast to down fast points, the train dipped to the left hand side. It then seemed to jolt downwards. Then as it passed over the down fast to down slow, it dipped to the left. As it travelled over the bridge across Dark's Lane, the train lifted and leant a little to the left, passed over the bridge and then leant back to the right as it came off the bridge. As soon as he arrived into Stevenage, he told the clerk in the ticket office. He asked them to report it. When he arrived home, he called his own supervisor and asked him to inform King's Cross Signal Box. His supervisor then rang him back, passed the details for King's Cross Signal Box to the member of staff and asked him to contact the box directly, which he did. He was informed maintenance staff would visit the site. After the report to the booking office clerk, there were a number of phone calls logged with King's Cross Power Signal Box. However, in a number of calls, the crossover was identified as having been the up fast to down fast crossover and not the down fast to down slow, which actually had the issue. It was eventually passed on to a member of Railtrack staff and the points were identified in that call as 2181, not 2182. When the wagon member of staff called the box himself slightly later, he gave the head code of the train that he was on, which should have identified it as a down train. The last person to examine the point south of Potter's Bar that night had been the member of staff from Railtrack. He examined the points by torchlight, and he watched as the next southbound train passed over them. He saw nothing wrong with them, but they weren't the points one Charlie 39 had crossed over. The last opportunity to prevent the disaster had been missed. The last real question of the investigation was on the subject of crashworthiness of the vehicles. 
Four of the fatalities at Potter's Bar were as a result of people being ejected from the fourth carriage as it rolled into the station. Two other people had also been ejected, but they survived. These individuals were believed to have exited the vehicle by the windows, all but three of which had been broken in the crash. The fact is that windows on trains are supposed to remain intact insofar as is possible. Admittedly, it isn't always manageable considering the forces that are involved in a crash. The issue with Potter's Bar was partially due to items entering the saloon and not leaving it. When the carriage had destroyed the overhead line stanchion on the down platform ramp, several of the balance weights entered into the cabin area. The fact that these weighed 40 kilograms each means that the energy absorption needed to resist their entry at 100 miles an hour was orders of magnitude above that which could be expected by glass, even if it was laminated. I think it's probably fair to say that the vehicles involved performed as well as can be expected when faced with this situation. The outcomes of Potter's Bar were quite wide-reaching. At the time of Potter's Bar, Railtrack was the private company responsible for the network's infrastructure. However, it was already well on its way to no longer holding that mantle. In fact, Network Rail would come into existence later in the year. In any case, Railtrack contracted out a great deal of its maintenance to private companies such as Jarvis. This, in practice, meant that the people responsible for the infrastructure didn't have full visibility of the quality of the maintenance it was receiving. One of the first decisions of the new network rail was to bring all maintenance in-house. This would give them more control and visibility over the safety of the infrastructure. The initial HSE reports identified the maintenance as the smoking gun, but the investigations and inquiries didn't stop there. The final report into the accident was published in 2005, but it wasn't published by the HSE. It was published under the acronym RSSB, the Railway Safety and Standards Board. RSSB was brought into existence in 2003 upon the recommendation of the public inquiry into the accident at Ladbroke Grove. The organisation lists its principal objective as being to lead and facilitate the rail industry's work to achieve the continuous improvement in the health and safety performance of the railways in Great Britain. In the time before the inquiry completed, a new regulator was also brought into the UK rail industry, the ORR, originally the Office of Rail Regulation. That came into fruition in 2004. The coroner's inquest didn't reach a conclusion until eight years later, in 2010. By this, so much had changed. Railtrack wasn't Railtrack anymore and Jarvis was just about to enter administration. On the 28th of April 2004, Jarvis had sent a letter to the victim's families admitting liability for the accident. The company said that it would formally accept legally justified claims after making a financial provision of £3 million. Upon conclusion of the inquest, a case was brought in front of the magistrates at Watford. Network Rail held overall responsibility for the track, but both companies had been brought to court over alleged breaches of the Health and Safety at Work Act 1974. Network Rail ultimately was fined £3 million, but the prosecution was dropped against Jarvis as its maintenance arm had gone into administration. 
Memorials exist to the people who lost their lives at Potter's Bar, as they do for other disasters. As at several other locations around the UK Rail Network, a garden has been created at Potter's Bar Station. Just between the station entrance building and the footpath underneath the tracks at Darks Lane, a slight curved ramp leads into a stone circle, with a framework constructed around it so that plants naturally create a peaceful and enclosed space for reflection. Ultimately, Potter's Bar and the changes made around Network Rail and the industry's safety management systems as a result was the beginning of the end for what had been a very dark period for the country's railways. In 1997, and then 99-2002, to a major accident had occurred every single year. It was becoming expected. After this point, the gaps widen out. 2004 saw seven deaths at Ufton Nervet, when a high-speed train hit a car stopped on a level crossing. Then, in 2007, the last passenger to be killed on a UK train was the sole fatality when an entire train derailed in Cumbria until the 12th of August 2020, when three people, two of them train crew, tragically lost their lives at Carmont near Stonehaven. I've just been reading the most recent issue of Rail Magazine, and the editorial byline on Nigel Harris's comment at the start reads, 13 years, 5 months, 18 days, since a passenger died on a train. I know that I've certainly said in the past that we do have a safety culture that we can be proud of, and a record in recent years which reflects that. There have been lessons to learn from each accident, and Carmont will bring its own in time. 13 years, 5 months, 18 days. How many lives have been saved in that time by the deaths at Potter's Bar and countless other locations? Thanks again for listening. I really do appreciate it. Remember, if you want to keep up to date or get in touch, find us on Facebook or look up at Signals to Danger on Twitter. Episode notes and sources can be found at signalstodanger.com. I think I'm going to move to a fortnightly episode after this one. Given the length of time it takes to research and write the episodes, it's probably worth making sure I have the time to do it right. Thanks again. The opening credits of this episode were Light Goes Away by Doug Maxwell. The closing credits were Russian River by Dan Hennig. And the incidental music was excerpts from Mountain by JVN. <laughs>